And the thing is, it's exactly the same stimulation. It's the same sensation. But because the context is different, your perception of it is totally opposite. Right. Yeah, of course. And meanwhile, guys, we think that other people think like us, right? So we're like, well, touch the penis and we're good, right? Whereas with women, it's a little more, there's a little more to it, generally. Over the last 17 years, we have launched our fair share of online courses, coaching programs, and finding the right platform has always been a challenge. They say if you do what you love, you never work a day in your life. But if you're an entrepreneur, you know the hard work that comes with it. That's why you need Kajabi. Kajabi makes it easy to run your entire online business from one platform so you can focus on what you love, creating. Kajabi is the ultimate all-in-one platform that helps creators and entrepreneurs build successful online businesses by unlocking predictable recurring revenue. No matter your niche, Kajabi makes it easy to turn your skills, passions, and experiences into enriching online courses, exclusive membership sites, subscription podcasts, thriving communities, personalized coaching, and more. The best part? Kajabi doesn't cut into your revenue because everything is owned and controlled by you. So keep 100% of what you earn. And with Kajabi, you also get robust analytics, easy payment options, email marketing tools, and customizable website templates all built in. You don't even need a huge audience to make sustainable income. There are thousands of creators on Kajabi making six and seven figures with less than 50,000 followers. Right now, Kajabi is offering a free 30-day trial to start your business if you go to kajabi.com charm. That's K-A-J-A-B-I dot com slash charm. Go to Kajabi dot com slash charm and join the creators and entrepreneurs who have made over $7 billion. This is the art of charm. Learn everything you need to know to crush it in business, love, and life. The art of charm is where ordinary guys become extraordinary men. Welcome to The Art of Charm, I'm Jordan Harbinger. The Art of Charm brings together the best minds in the industry to teach you how to crush it in life, love, and work. Imagine having a mix of experienced mentors, teaching you expertise and decades of research, testing, and tough lessons, packing that all into a concise curriculum. Well, maybe not concise, it is episode almost 400-something. We've created one of the premier lifestyle programs available anywhere, and it's free. This is the show we wish we had a decade ago. Make sure to stay up to date with everything going on here and get some great content and free products and books that we don't or can't share on the show by signing up for the newsletter at theartofcharm.com. This show is about you, and we're here to help you become the best you can be in every area of your life. If you're new to the show but you want to know where to begin or you want to find out more about what we teach here at The Art of Charm Live Programs in L.A., you can go to the website and we'll email you a starter kit of all the top podcasts here at The Art of Charm and articles as well. I never mentioned that, but they're in there. And we'll send you all the fundamentals such as body language, eye contact, vocal tonality, dating, attraction, networking and negotiation, relationship management, public speaking and more. Pretty much all the stuff we'd wish we'd learned and mastered years ago. We have our live programs running every single week here in Los Angeles, California. In fact, we've got guys from all over the world, which shows that no matter where you are, you can make it here if you want to learn and grow. Details on that at theartofcharm.com slash bootcamp, or give us a call or even email me, jordan at theartofcharm.com. I read everything, and I'm looking forward to meeting you here at AOC. Today we're talking with Emily Nagoski. She's the director of wellness education at Smith College and the author of the new best-selling book, Come As You Are, The Surprising New Science That Will Transform Your Sex Life. This one's about sex, in case you didn't guess, from the title, so make sure the kids aren't in the car for this one unless this is your way of outsourcing the birds and the bees talk. 
We're going to talk about context sensitivity, the brakes and the accelerator in terms of sex and sexual relations with your significant other or with anyone for that matter. And of course, responsive desire in contrast to spontaneous desire, orgasms, what they are, what they aren't, and something called arousal non-concordance, what genital response means and what it doesn't mean. There's a lot of stuff here that's really interesting. I found this one particularly enlightening. I won't tell you why, but <laughs> you'll have to listen and find out. So enjoy this one with Emily Nagoski. So tell me what you do in one sentence. I teach people to live with confidence and joy inside their bodies and maximize their sexual potential. All right. Interesting. So how did you get into that? Because lots of people have sex doesn't mean they're qualified to teach it. Yeah, I started as an undergraduate peer health educator at the University of Delaware, where I got trained to talk about condoms and contraception and safer sex and consent. And I went into dorms and taught that stuff to my peers. And even though I was in the process of getting a degree in psychology with minors in cognitive science and philosophy, and I had this plan to be a clinical neuropsychologist, I was going to work with people with traumatic brain injury and stroke. Uh, I loved the intellectual stuff I was doing, but the work I was doing as a peer health educator, especially the sex education, made me like who I am as a person. I could really see that I was contributing something that made people's lives better. And I decided to follow that as my path instead. So I went on to get a master's degree in counseling psychology. One of my clinical internships was at the Kinsey Institute, uh, the sexual health clinic there. Um, and I worked for several years as a health educator at the Kinsey Institute, answering questions that got emailed into the institute. Then when I got done with a master's degree, I got a PhD in health behavior with a doctoral concentration in human sexuality. I've been at Smith College, which is one of the historic seven sisters, a liberal arts college in Massachusetts for about seven years, and I teach women's sexuality there. So that's an all-girls school? It's a women's college, okay, yes. Okay, got it. And it seems almost like it would be more important there because I know just from guys who went to school at all boys schools, they come out or all guys schools. I guess when we were kids, they were all boys schools, but they mm -hmm. came out and they just had these weird perceptions that were not the same as what we had in a public school where we, you know, saw women every day. You can end up with these weird rumors that just kind of become fact that have no basis in reality. And that happens in every population, but I would imagine it happens in a population where people are maybe separated from the opposite sex and things like that. So that the type of education that you do might even be more important in a place like that. Not so much because they're separated from guys, because we're part of a consortium of colleges. They can go to Amherst College and UMass Amherst. Uh, so they have lots of access to guys if they want it. Yeah, in college, uh, for sure. Yeah. they Being being accessed by guys is in college is probably not that hard. Yeah, they're looking for each other. They are out, yeah. they go, like they want to have those experiences and they actively seek them out. Unfortunately, wanting to have the experiences and knowing how to have them in a way that feels safe and pleasurable for everyone involved doesn't necessarily happen automatically. Because if you grew up in America, you definitely got taught some bullshit, crazy, wrong things about the way sex and sexual pleasure work. Yeah. And you have to unlearn all of it. What, what are some of those things that you see that are just kind of, oh, that old thing, let's dispel that right now? Are there some common, maybe funnier mm. ones that are just ridiculous? Well, all of them are both funny and also scary at the same time. 
So one of the most important pieces of science from the last 20 years is the dual control model, which tells us that the sexual response mechanism in your brain is both a sexual accelerator, right, which responds to all the sexually relevant information that you encounter, everything you see, hear, smell, touch, taste, or imagine that is sexy in your brain. It sends a signal that says, turn on. We all know that experience of having the right stimulation in your body going, yes, Right? Right. But at the same time that that's happening, in parallel, there's also a sexual break, the sexual inhibition system, which is aware of all the very good reasons not to be turned on right now. And it's sending a signal that says, turn off. So the process of arousal is both turning on the ons and turning off the offs. And that's the thing a lot of people don't realize they have to do. So when they're experiencing difficulties with desire or arousal or making sure their partner's enjoying themselves. Uh, they're focusing a lot on trying to add more stimulation to the gas pedal when really what would be effective is decreasing stimulation to the brake. Oh, that's interesting. Okay, I definitely want to get deep into that as much as we can. And uh, it's funny, I'm sure you do these interviews all the time, and this is the part where we would play like that salt and pepper song, you know? <laughs> yeah. That, that's like probably you're just sick of by now. Not everyone plays it. Not everyone? Oh, okay. Because well. of the title of my book, I'm getting more Nirvana now. Oh, what's the title of your book? Come As You Are. Oh, yeah, right. Okay, I have that in here, too. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. Well, that's also equally original. The fact that I thought about playing Salt and Pepper should count, though. Oh, um, yeah. So you teach graduate and undergraduate classes in human sexuality. I got to ask, what's the difference between a graduate-level class in sexuality and an undergraduate? I mean, it just seems like one of those topics, and I, I know... <laughs> I know this is mildly insulting, and I apologize in advance. It just seems like a topic where it's, I mean, how much is there to talk about when it comes to this? Obviously, there's a lot more than I thought originally. Yeah, well, my book's 100,000 words long, so there's at least that much. Wow, yeah. Well, how many pages is that? That's a uh, lot of like words. 400, yeah. That's a long book. Okay, I'll give you that. It's not as long as John Cleese's memoir, but it's real long. Right. Um and the reason for that is because the way sexuality works at its best isn't just sex in isolation. It's sex that's integrated into your life where you recognize the ways that your stress level is fluctuating and your level of trust and satisfaction in your relationship changes, how those things influence the way your body experiences pleasure and desire. So the nerd version of this is that it's context, right? When you're in a really flirty, sexy, fun state of mind and your partner tickles you, that can feel, you know, fun and sexy and potentially lead to good things. Tickling is not everyone's favorite, but if you like tickling, it can be great. But if that exact same person tries to tickle you when you are pissed off and frustrated with them, that does not feel so good. Right. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and the thing is, it's exactly the same stimulation. It's the same sensation. But because the context is different, your perception of it is totally opposite. So there's this stereotype about how, oh, women are so complicated. They don't know what they want. They change. One day you want this. The next day you want the other thing. And when you understand the way context influences responsiveness and the experience of pleasure, all the pieces come together and you're like, oh, it's actually not that complicated. The person is just sensitive to context. Right. Yeah, of course. And meanwhile, guys, as humans, we think that other people think like us, right? So we're like, well touch the penis and we're good, right? Whereas with women, it's a little more, there's a little more to it, generally. And yeah. Guys have that. We just turn it all off when everything else, I think, I don't know, what's your theory on this? I feel like guys are really good at turning everything else off. That's why guys get in so much trouble, because it's like, oh, this is probably a bad idea, and this person's probably not very 
uh, you know, good for me. This is definitely, you know, I'm involved in this other thing. And then this is, you know, this is unsafe and I'm in this sketchy place. Fuck it. Right. Like, <laughs> oh, well, I'll just forget about have another shot of whiskey. And and women seem to be a little bit more like, well, this has to I mean, we're you know, the stereotype is what, like candles in a bubble bath. Sure. Yep. That's the stereotype. <laughs> So I'm I'm feeding stereotypes and you're breaking them. That's that's our that's our job here on on the show today. So there's a little bit of research that actually supports the stereotype. Everybody varies tremendously, so you can't say men are this way and women are that way. Right. I will, but I'll be wrong. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Go ahead and say it, and we'll all just know that it's a caricature and not actually how things work. Right. So when you look at a hundred men versus a hundred women, on average, the men's sexual accelerator will be more sensitive than the women's accelerator and the women's break will be more sensitive than the men's break. So at a broad level, men are easier to turn on and women are easier to turn off. There's lots of variability and it depends on the context, but broadly that's true. And also the way we get trained by our culture is different. So the stuff that hits women's brakes, it's not just that we have more sensitive brakes potentially, it's that we have way more stuff hitting our brakes. All the stuff about like body self-criticism and sexual disgust and the Madonna whore complex and the lessons we get are so complicated and conflicting. How are we supposed to know how to feel about our own sexual bodies? We're supposed to be both, you know, virginal and say no, and then also be sexual dynamos simultaneously. So we have all that stuff hitting our brakes. And guys, y'all certainly have cultural learning that is interfering with your sexuality, but it's really not on the same order of magnitude as what women experience. And that's because of all of the, the, the shaming and the, the conservative upbringing and stuff. Do, do you want to sort of touch on that stuff? I think no one's no one's really a stranger to that. Maybe there's people listening, especially younger people or people in other countries that are like, wait, what? That happens? Yeah. And I have a hard time remembering that people don't know that it happens. I recently had uh, dinner with my brother who's approaching 40 now, and I asked him about his body image, like how he feels about living inside a body that's about 40 years old and how people perceive his body. And he was he shrugged. He was like, yeah, this is just sort of what expect what a 40 year old guy looks like. Like it was fine. And I'm 38 and like I can't even imagine what it would feel like. To just be like, yeah, my body's cool. I'm all set the way I am. And I do this for a living. I teach people about this for a living. So you'd think I'd be like completely free of the body self-criticism. But no, it's just ingrained so deeply that women often engage in a thing called spectatoring. So this is where instead of paying attention to the wonderful things that are happening inside her body and the things that are happening inside her partner's body, she's instead sort of thinking about the way her breasts are moving and the fat on her belly and her facial expression, like what does her partner see and the cottage cheese on the back of her thigh and all of that stuff. I mean, is that hitting the accelerator and making the situation sexier? Right now, that's more it's breaks. hitting the break. Yeah, exactly. And people wonder why women struggle with orgasm. Well, it's because they've spent the first two or three decades of their life being trained to hate everything about the shape of their body. Right. I was just going to say, maybe that's why a lot of people can't achieve orgasm because they're constantly micromanaging those perceptions. And that's like such a massive logical engagement or engagement of the logical brain that they can't let loose enough to possibly experience that. Yeah. The brain research shows us that uh, the neurological trigger for orgasm is this releasing of the break in the brain. <laughs> Right. And then that's when you cross the threshold into orgasm. And people who struggle are people who have a hard time with that release of the break. Huh. OK. And that can be caused by a lot of things. Body image, 
some sort of other insecurity. Just there's a million other things, right? Cultural Anything. stuff. If you have a history of trauma or sexual violence, that can keep the brakes on. If a person just naturally has a really sensitive break, that can keep the brakes on. And also if a person doesn't feel fully trusting with their partner, that can keep the brakes on. Oh, interesting. Okay. Does that happen a lot? In college-age women, for oh, example, well, yeah, of, co- of course, what that, that's what the research is mostly done on because uh, people who do research have easy access to college students and their opinions. So most of the research we find is on college-age women. So 10% of college-age women had an orgasm the last time they had sex with a person for the first time. And mostly that happened because those women touched their own clitorises with their own hand. Whereas more than 60% of women had an orgasm the last time they had sex with a partner with whom they had been in a relationship for more than six months. So women's bodies learn how to relax with a partner gradually over time. Okay. It's much easier for us, for us to have orgasms later in a relationship than earlier in a relationship because our bodies have to learn to relax and let the break go with this other person because we're really worried. I mean, we criticize ourselves, but also we're worried that our partner is having those same critical thoughts of like, well, look at her face and look at how her breasts are moving and the fat on her belly. Yeah. Well, and meanwhile, most of the time, guys are just like, I'm so glad to be having sex right yes, now. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. What's going on inside the guy's head is this is amazing. She's naked. Holy crap, this is fabulous. Yeah, especially in college, right? Yeah. yeah. You just feel lucky to have a girl with you. Yeah. Meanwhile, you're like, <laughs> you're holding it in, especially right. if you're in college. You're thinking just 10 more seconds, however yes. long that might actually be in reality. Yeah, I got you. All right. Interesting. So there's a whole book full of this, which will be great. Uh, and your book, Come As You Are, which, you know, I see what you did there. Um, mm-hmm. What can we do to improve the pleasure of our partners. I mean, if we're guys listening to this, there's plenty of guys and girls listening to this. So I want to make sure that, you know, we touch on things that women should understand about themselves as well. But I definitely want to focus on like, all right, we got the men's attention here. What do you want? Now that everyone's listening to you, you have the stage. What are you yeah. going to teach the guys to, to do, to know, to understand? Maybe the two most important things are learning what hits your partner's brakes and figuring out how you can get rid of that stuff. There are some things that a partner can't do anything about. The body self-criticism is like a project that women have to go through on their own. Um, but stressful things, relationship things, not feeling sure that their partner really likes their bodies, guys can do stuff about that. And sometimes it's easy stuff like grit on the sheets, like just change your sheets. It can be simple stuff like that. Worried about people walking in, lock the door or find a time when no one else is around. Um, so figure out what's hitting the brakes and get rid of that stuff. Most of the things that cause women to struggle sexually have nothing to do with sex itself and everything to do with everything that's happening in the rest of their lives. So really paying warm, focused attention to that stuff and being supportive will make your sex life better. Ah, so that's why guys in college who are sort of the amateur Don Juans are always like, you're so beautiful, right? Because they're like, take away the insecurity part and they're like oh my roommate won't be home for a few hours meanwhile the the people who are adults that i know that are still sort of living in group-ish situations they're just kind of like if somebody walks in it's their problem you know like we live here too yeah there's a sort of uh getting used to it that if you live in a house with a lot of people you know people are going to hear you having sex and that's just how it is and for some people that's actually so this is the individual differences is a really big deal for some people being heard having sex is a real turn on and for other people it's a real turn off and that's just personal differences yeah yeah exactly but that also could come from cultural stuff like i don't want people to know i'm having sex because 
then they'll think I'm a bad person. Exactly. Or I do want people to know I'm having sex because then I will think I'm a hardcore badass stud. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's definitely two different types of... Right. May maybe some of those are associated to different genders at different times. I get that. Because in college, mm -hmm. it's like, I want everybody to know that I'm doing... Like, they walk out in a towel and they're like, nothing, I'm just thirsty, bro. Need to grab a beer. Walk through the whole party with a towel on <laughs> from yeah. your bedroom. I mean, we've all been there. Maybe not. And I wonder if... I mean, that performance is all for guys, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're not like, I hope all the girls see me walk out in a towel. Uh, yeah. You know, it's like, I hope the, all my bros know. The girls in the room are like, ew, God, really? Yeah. No, it's like, I hope all my bros know I'm not really showing her my stamp collection. We're not really playing Halo in there. Right. It's Yeah. No, it's all, it's all for dudes. It's all bravado. So, so we turn off the brakes. How do we know? First of all, how do we know we've hit a break aside from she's like, I got to go. I'm tired. Or I have a test tomorrow. I mean, are there ways for us to know when she's pulling back and, and what might be causing that? I mean, is it is it as simple as, like, what's going on here? I mean, we don't want guys to get confrontational, right? And we also don't want them to specifically engineer something that would be harmful for someone else. So, No, the point is the pleasure of the other person, right? Yes. You want her to want it more than she wants to take her next breath. That's the goal is to get her really, re not just to agree to, like, we don't want people who are just like, okay, fine, I guess we'll have some sex. You want her to be panting for it, right? Yeah, well, yeah, that sounds great. <laughs> yeah. Sign me up. So, and to, to get there, you have to be paying really close attention because girls are gender socialized to be really nice and to say that everything is just fine and not necessarily say, like, that thing you just did makes me feel really self-conscious about my body. Like, when you stare at that other girl's breasts, yeah, that makes me worry about my own breasts. Yes, it does. But if you ask her why she's gone silent, she'd be like, no, it's fine. Everything is fine. Because we're taught that the success and stability of our relationships and our ability to meet other people's needs is a measure of our worth as human beings. So for her to say, actually, it really hurt my feelings when you looked at that other woman's breasts, is to risk her genuine worth as a person because she's making it harder in a relationship. So conflict is difficult for people who've grown up with that message. Uh -huh, so you have to be like paying really close attention to figure out what this individual and every single woman is going to be different. What is activating the brakes in this particular woman in this particular setting, having conversations about like great sex that you've had in the past, particularly listening to her tell stories about like the best sex she's ever had and really great experiences will give you a lot of information about what works and what doesn't work. Now back to the show. Ah, okay. So how do we bring up those conversations? Because, you know, sometimes people might find it a little awkward, you know? Yeah. So it's not a conversation to have with a person like, you know, right off the bat or even necessarily before you've had any sort of sexual experience together. But if you talk about the kind of things that if you're already in a sexually connected relationship and you are looking to increase the pleasure and the variety and the novelty in the relationship, have conversations about like, so tell me a fantasy that you've had that you would never want to act out. And then tell me a fantasy that you might one day under super good circumstances, potentially, hypothetically, might want to act out. 
like ask for those things. And there will be, you know, the awkwardness of, uh, there's a fear of judgment, right? And everyone feels this, like, I can't tell my partner that what I've always wanted is to be spanked. Because what if their response is, ew, that's disgusting. You're so freaky. Nobody wants that experience. So whatever she says, respond to it with like, hey, great. All right. You do you. That's interesting. Oh, okay. I mean, we have to get over our own insecurities before we can sort of do this for or with a partner. Yes. <laughs> That's what makes it hard. Damn it. All right. Yeah. <laughs> right. Because, yeah, well, I think a lot of people are going, I'm not going to do that. That would be weird, you know, or, oh, okay. That sounds really simple. Wait a minute. Well, here's the thing. We could have a sexual, we could have sex with a person, get naked and be skin to skin and have your genitals inside another person's genitals with the fluids and everything. And yet, not be able to sit down over dinner and have a conversation about your fantasies. Yeah, I think that happens all the time. Why is that more intimate? What makes it more intimate to have the conversation? Vulnerability. Wow. Being naked and having your genitals is less vulnerable than let me tell you about this fantasy I had. Yeah. I think I think so. I mean, do you disagree? No, I think you're totally right. I don't know why it's more vulnerable, but it totally is. Yeah. Um, a lot of people have actively experienced shaming, even if it's indirectly, because they'll hear someone else talking about a thing that they're really into. But the way the people are talking about the thing is clear, like really derogatory, and they're all grossed out and laughing about it. Um, as opposed to being like, well, some people like this other thing. Some people like that because they're not aware that there's someone in the room who actually really does like that. I call it yucking people's yums. I like that. When sex educators get trained, uh, we're taught, we're exposed to, we do sexual attitude reassessments where it's a weekend of watching all the porn and talking to lots of different kinds of people. And the purpose of it is to reduce our reactivity so that pretty much people can talk about anything sexually with us. And we're just like, all right, well, that's interesting. That's different from what I thought already. But most people do have this really sort of trigger of like, blah, when something unfamiliar is presented to them sexually. Right. So learning to be really welcoming of whatever it is your partner brings into the room. It's a complicated, difficult skill, but it is, man, think what it would do to your sex life if your brakes weren't constantly being hit by the self-consciousness of your own stuff and by judgment of the other person's stuff. Like it just opens up so much. Yeah, it's uh, well, the first sort of uh, exposure I probably had to something like that was, I don't remember what movie it was, probably like a Kevin Smith film or something back in the day, where they're like furries or something. I don't even know if that's a real thing. Yes, it's a thing. Yeah, it's a thing. And do you ever, by the way, do you ever think about where this stuff comes from? Is there, there's no real way to trace that back to anything, is there? Oh, yeah, there's research, yeah. Really? Okay, so so what the, what's up with the furry thing? I mean, I'm not trying, again, I'm not trying to yuck anyone's yum here, but... Yeah. That's unusual by 99.9% .9 of people's standard. And I'm not saying it's gross. I just want to know what happened where you're like, oh, man, a chicken a rabbit suit is my thing. I mean, yeah, basically. So uh, when we're born, obviously nothing is particularly sexually relevant to us apart from direct genital stimulation. That's sexually relevant. And over time, as we grow up, our bodies learn to link when this genital response happens, where we have this sort of internal tingly emotional thing, and then we link that with whatever the external stimulus is, right? Um, and for guys, because a boy has a penis, there's this very obvious physical thing that happens with his body. So you get this very tight, close feedback loop between 
genital response, internal tingly sensation, and external stimulus. So that by the time the boy gets to adolescence, he's pretty well locked into the category of stuff that's going to do it for him. This is not how sexual orientation develops, by the way. This is just the way fetishes and other sort of narrower categories develop. Okay. They do this research on rats where they uh, associate the smell of lemons with sex. And then when that male who's been trained to associate lemons with sex is presented with two healthy, fertile female rats, he'll prefer the female rat who smells like lemons. And by prefer, I mean that he'll copulate with both of them because he can, but he'll ejaculate 80% of the time with the female who smells like lemons. Right. Like still a dude, but prefers the other one. Got it. But yeah, but is just really into the lemon smell. That's so funny. In regular rat life, that would never happen. But because we constructed this artificial world around the development of this rat, we created it. So you created a citrus fetish. Right. In rats. Yep. That's pretty cool. So the same thing happens with adults. And it makes perfect sense that something like furries would be a fetish because you've got the close touch of the costume, which replicates the attachment behavior from when we're infants and really young. You have the neotenous, the very attractive, like facial expression of a cartoon character. Like there's a reason cartoon characters all look the way that they do. Like that face shape is very attractive to us as humans. Um, and you have the sort of like cuddly, affectionate, soft sensation of the fur. I mean, there's lots of things about it that like everybody likes a beautiful face. Everybody likes to feel held and affectionate touch. And everybody likes like soft sensations. Yeah. What's not to like? Yeah, exactly. If it's not your thing, it's not your thing. But yeah, like this person reminds me of my teddy bear that I had. I want to bang it out, right? I don't know. It's interesting that this stuff all gets traced back. So, I mean, but is there a danger zone here where we shouldn't read into this too much? Because I'm envisioning people going, oh, well, she's interested in this. So something weird probably happened to her in the past. And I don't want to be, I don't want to deal with that. So, you know, because you could end up really overthinking this one. Yeah. So the overwhelming majority of people with fetishes are men because of the tightness of that feedback loop between genital response and external stimulation. Whereas if you're a little girl growing up, your body has the same genital response, but because the clitoris is so much smaller than the penis, you don't have this obvious thing happening. So the loop doesn't get so closely reinforced. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Yeah. Um, the overwhelming majority of people with fetishes are men probably because of that. We don't fully know this story, of course. The science is still ongoing and will be for decades. Uh, but this is the best story that I know to explain it. And women's sexuality is also more flexible and adaptable and changeable. So what a woman is interested in will change with her life experience. Um, she'll be attracted to many different types of people, whereas a man will sort of have a type which may be a really sort of broad kind of type or a really narrow kind of type, but that's the thing that turns him on. And it changes less over his lifespan than a woman's changes over her lifespan. Interesting. I find that interesting because, again, you know, guys think that everyone else thinks like us, so they do these dumb things where they go, am I your type? And the girl's like, I don't know. Meanwhile, he's like, of course you know, because he knows. Right. Right. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. The way to become a person's type is to treat them in a way that makes them feel really, really good. And she'll come to associate whatever it is you look like. She'll be like, that appearance is associated with me feeling spectacularly good. And yes. So yes, that is my type. Yeah, perfect. That is kind of enlightening as well. And in your book, you separate 
two types of desires, responsive desire and spontaneous desire. Can you, I mean, they seem kind of self-explanatory, but I'd love to hear about why those are important and what they are in the first place. Yeah. So the usual story we get told about desire is that it's spontaneous. It just appears out of the blue. Like you have this poof, uh, like I, it's like the great kazoo from the Flintstones. Remember the great kazoo? Uh, no, no. Oh, that's so sad. Okay. Well, it just appears inside you, this feeling. You're like, oh, I would really like to go get some sex. And so you go and get some sex if you possibly can. That's the spontaneous model. And it absolutely is the way some people experience desire, at least some of the time. But there's also this other way of experiencing desire where you're not thinking about it. It doesn't appear out of the blue. You're just in the middle of like surfing the web or whatever. And your partner like touches your arm and starts kissing your neck and your whole body goes, oh, right, sex, that's a good idea. We should totally do that. So spontaneous desire happens in anticipation of arousal, whereas responsive desire happens in response to arousal. So the arousal comes first and then the desire for it, which is a totally different way of understanding the way desire works. And it changes everything about consent and initiation and what a healthy sex life looks like, especially in like a long-term relationship. Got it. Okay. And why, why are those important then? Like, you know, what do we care if one's different than the other? Yeah. So for one thing, uh, if you have a responsive desire style, uh, which is, it's more typical of women, but there are lots of guys who have responsive desire style too, where their interest doesn't really start until they get started. It's important to know you're not broken. You don't have low desire. There's nothing wrong with you. Your body just needs more of a reason to have sex than like it's possible to have sex. I feel like I have both. Most people do. The majority of people experience both depending on the context. Like when you like meet a partner who really like does it for you, it's like desire is there all the time, ready and willing. So if you're in the early hot and heavy stages of a relationship, the love fire in your emotional brain is sparking over into the sex fire. And so desire feels spontaneous all the time. But if it's later in a relationship, like 10 years into a relationship, or if something has gone wrong in the relationship where you look at that person and they look the same, but you know this thing about them that like they cheated on you or whatever, you're not going to have any kind of desire or the relationship is great, but you're really like stressed out and exhausted sex is not at the top of your priority list then. And you can get into a good state by like lying down skin to skin with your partner and being like, I appreciate affectionate touch. Let's see what happens if we do this. Responsive desire, normal. Yeah. Huh. And so most people have both. Yes. And do men and women differ in their levels of one versus the other? Yeah. Spontaneous desire seems to be more typical of men. Surprise, surprise. And this is another one of those things where like the male as default model, we think that just because that's the way most men work, that's the way everybody should work. And it's just not true. Responsive desire is normal. It doesn't matter what set of genitals you have. Responsive desire is normal and healthy. It's just totally different from what we've been taught to expect. And and just to be super clear, spontaneous desire, let's give a couple of examples of both, right? Or an example of both. Hmm? Correct me where I'm wrong here. Spontaneous desire is like, I'm hanging out, playing video games, and I'm like, oh, I'm kind of in the mood, right? And then, yeah. and then responsive desire is I'm watching, you know, Game of Thrones or something, and I'm like, oh, you know, this thing that I'm seeing right here or whatever is kind of, kind of hot. And then, like, my girlfriend's in the same room and we look at each other and it's like, you know, 
Marvin Gaye starts playing quietly in the background. Right. Right, and then fade to black. Yeah. Got it. Okay. So just in case anybody was a little unclear on those two things, because I hate confusing people with terms, because then they just tune out and then they don't learn anything, even though it's like a really simple thing that everyone's seen a million times in their life. They just didn't put a label on it. Yeah. Spontaneous desire is a, a drive model. So you can think about it being like a hunger. You know, you're just like in the middle of a thing and you're like, oh man, I forgot to have breakfast. I'm really hungry. That internal experience of just like, whereas responsive desire is more like curiosity, where there's that attractive, you're really interesting thing over there and you want to go and get it. But you wouldn't be experiencing if that attractive thing weren't over there. You have no innate drive to finish a mystery novel. But once you get halfway into a mystery novel, you want to know what happened at the end. That's curiosity. Right. But you wouldn't be feeling it if you hadn't started the book in the first place. Right. Yeah. There's a little investment there. Exactly. Awesome. So why are orgasms such a big deal? I mean, for guys, they're a big deal because it's like the part where we enjoy it the most. And it's a big deal for the woman to have one because then we feel like, okay, I'm the man. I've done my job. I don't have to worry about, you know, her feeling like I'm not doing it. You know, she's going to tell her friends. It's all ego. Right. Oh, it's absolutely. Yeah. And uh, having your partner's orgasm be like your measure of your masculinity and your capacity as a human being is a formula for getting that person to start faking it with you. So at the county fair, they have the, the strength tester machine where you slam a hammer into the pad. and oh, it dings yeah. a bell. Right. That's a measure of your you're like the bell. You know, you're a man. Exactly. Um, if, if your partner's orgasm is like that for you then you're creating a context where she feels like she has to have an orgasm in order for you to be okay with her, with yourself. And she wants you to be okay with yourself. And therefore, even if orgasm just sort of isn't there for her today because she's really tired or whatever, she'll want to make you happy. And so she will give you the orgasm that you need her to have. Oh, yeah. Sorry. Exactly. Right. And then you end up with like creating a bad habit of. Yes. Yeah. One person not really digging it. And then she has unwittingly taught you that the thing that you just did gets her to orgasm. And now you think that's the thing that gets her to orgasm. And it's totally not a thing that gets her to orgasm. And five years later, she's still having to pretend (laughs) like it gets really bad. All right. Back to the show. Wow. Yeah, that could cause real problems because then there's resentment there that's like not necessarily anyone's fault. Right. And then you start arguing over it because you can't say, I've been faking it for five years without destroying you. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, So the key, the way to avoid this whole mess is to make, instead of having orgasm as the goal, have pleasure be the goal. And if orgasm is a thing that comes with the pleasure, that's fantastic. But it's not necessarily the most pleasurable thing. Right. And there's lots of ways to experience sexual pleasure. And that's important for guys to know because I I shouldn't generalize too much here, but I would say like 99.9% of guys probably have no problem orgasming, right? I mean, it's just like a thing we're really used to doing. Now we're ruining it. There are men with orgasmic dysfunction. I'm sure there are. And I know there's there's guys with erectile dysfunction that are like 25 because they watch a ton of porn again, you know, you're the expert. Women are the ones that sometimes have it, sometimes don't. And it doesn't necessarily depend on the quality of the sex or the quality of the partner, et cetera. It's just like you said, some days 
that's what's happening. And other days, it's not in the cards. Yeah, a lot of it is a learning piece. Uh, the most recent statistic I've seen is that 12% of women age 28 or younger have not had an orgasm or aren't sure whether or not they've had an orgasm. So it's pretty common in young women never to have had an orgasm. And it's not like it comes, an orgasm is like riding a bicycle. <laughs> it doesn't happen unless you practice. You have to learn how. You have to teach your body how to do it. Once you know how, it gets easier and easier and you don't forget. But you have to learn and practice. And women do not have the same cultural permission to masturbate and teach their bodies how to get to orgasm. Now, what is this this concept of arousal non-concordance? You know, what is what is that? I thought that was kind of interesting, and I didn't yes. really get it, but it seemed quite important, so I wanted to ask about it for sure. It's actually the second really important thing that I would want every guy on Earth to know about. So let's be sex scientists for a minute. We're going to take a guy and put him in a dimly lit, very comfortable room, leave him alone with a, a Rigiscan, which is it's a strain gauge, measures changes in blood flow to his genitals. So he puts that on. He sits in this very comfortable lazy boy chair. He puts a tray over his lap and the tray has a dial that goes from zero to 10 and it has a remote control. So he's alone in the room and he watches all the porn and he on the dial he reports how aroused he feels and with the strain gauge he's measuring what his genital response is so when we get the data what we're going to look for is an overlap between blood flow change to his genitals and how turned on he feels right okay and there's a 50 percent overlap between what a man's genitals are doing and how turned on he feels Five zero is not a hundred percent, but it's a lot. It's a massively statistically significant relationship. So if we do the same thing with a woman, we give her a vaginal photoplethysmograph, which is like a little baby flashlight that she puts in the vagina. It measures changes in blood flow. Okay. Um, and we give her the same tray and she watches all the porn and we look for an overlap between what her genital blood flow is doing and how turned on she feels. There is a 10% overlap, one zero between what her genitals are doing and how aroused she feels. And the reason for that is that her genitals respond to sort of everything, even the really amazing research that blew my mind about this was when women are exposed to videos of bonobos, non-human primates copulating. Their genitals respond not as much as to human porn, but some. So why on earth is that happening? It turns out that what genital response tells us for everybody is that something relevant, something sexually relevant is happening, right? And what the person's arousal level, their report of how turned on they feel is whether the relevant thing is appealing or attractive to them, whether it's wanted and liked, right? So mm -hmm. the two have a 50% overlap for people with a male body and about a 10% overlap for people with a female body. Okay. And the reason this is important is because if you think that checking her genital response will tell you anything useful about how much she's liking what's going on, that is really unlikely to be a useful indicator. And the way I talk to guys about this, because guys very much have this idea that if my genitals are responding, there's something I want and like happening for sure. But if you remember being like a 12 or 13 year old boy and like, your pants could fit slightly wrong or the wind could blow in the wrong direction or like your teacher's shirt could move just that little extra bit and your genitals would respond or the vibration in the back of the bus. Like just sort yeah. of everything counts as sexually relevant. Doesn't mean you want or like any of those things necessarily. You might, but not necessarily. My husband gives me the example of the phrase donut hole. 
He was 13. There was just, just the words. That's all that mattered. That was just the words. Uh, not that it was not that he was like actually sexually interested in donuts. It's that his body was so flooded with testosterone that even that counted as sexually relevant. Yeah. Well, I can, <laughs> yeah, that's kind of funny. I can see that happening. I mean, I'm trying to think of something ridiculous for me, but it's like little kids, you know, who are 11 or something. They'll, they'll find, I don't know, as a guy, I remember like the Sports Illustrated swimsuit issue was coming out. And as soon as the first TV commercial came on with that, like, hey, the swimsuit issue is coming up, it was like everybody was getting ready to steal it from the mailbox. And so, and if I got one of those now, I'd be like, eh, I, I don't, I haven't cared about yes. something like that for literally over 20 years. Because it no longer really qualifies, right? Right. Right. It doesn't qualify. I mean, part of that's just because there's so much more stuff out there, but. The other stuff is because, yeah, when I was like 13, 14 years old, you could be hanging out and you could see something happen on TV that was completely innocuous, like no big deal. And you're like, you're thinking about that for three weeks. I really, this research didn't exist when I was in college. Um, and I really wish it had because I was sitting outside of a coffee shop with some friends of mine, some guy friends when I was in my sophomore year in college. Uh, and a guy told me this story. A late night after a party, everyone's passed out or asleep all over the house, and he's walking around looking for his friend so they can walk home. Um, and he opens the door and finds his friend having sex with a girl who's passed out, raping her. Oh, no. Yeah. Wow. And he, my friend, knew that this was a seriously not okay situation. Um, and the friend says, hey, you want to try this? Oh, no. That's yeah. terrible. Like, this is an awful story, but it gets a little worse. Not as bad as it could, but... His response in the moment was, no, man, we got to go. And the reason that's all he said, instead of get the fuck away from her, you rapist felon asshole, right. is that his body responded. He was presented with a sexually relevant situation, right? Even though he knew, like it hit the gas pedal, even though the brakes were slammed on too at the same time, probably because he was disinhibited by alcohol a little bit, maybe because he had a less sensitive brake to begin with. But he was like so flooded with shame that he might be like an asshole douchebag rapist too, that he couldn't do anything. Whereas if he had known, if he had known that what his genitals are doing, all it means is yes, yes, I know penis, this is a sexually relevant situation. It's also seriously not okay. And what my genitals respond to doesn't necessarily mean anything in particular about what I want or like. Yeah. I don't like this situation and now I can do something about it. Right? He'd be freed up from all that worry that he might be a creep, basically. Yeah. Well, I, I think a lot of guys don't talk about this stuff or even take notice of this stuff, but it, it definitely happens. I was out recently with a bunch of entrepreneurs, all of whom are really good people. And I don't know, we had this, we were eating dinner at like some family restaurant and the waitress was probably like 16 or 17 years old. But, you know, she was a cute little uh, girl. And one of the guys was like, you know, joked about like, hey, is that girl your type to one of the other guys and he was like shut up man because i guess i don't know there's some inside joke there and then another guy who had kids probably the waitress's age was like knock it off guys but i remember thinking wow i can identify with both sides of this conversation like i don't have kids but i would assume once you do this start this stuff starts to reprogram because you don't see all females as the potential for xyz once you start raising them mm -hmm. and but you know before that we're all kind of still 15-year-old kids in our bodies. The, the mechanics haven't changed that much, even though we might be, quote-unquote, more mature. 
And then you see these creepy old guys that are acting on this stuff, and you're like, whoa. And some of the reason I think guys have such a strong reaction to it is because we're kind of like one step away from being that creepy guy. We just have more sense than that. Exactly. Right. But it does trigger, it triggers the same type of shame where you're like, you you know, hey, man, you know, leave her alone. But you're thinking, oh, man, you know, like I kind of maybe had 10% of that thought pattern going on. I'm just not a jerk about it, and I'm trying to stick it back in the closet. And that's the thing is we all get raised by cultures that teach us certain things about sex and our culture's not that healthy about sex. It's really confused. And so the way our brains and bodies respond to sex, having been trained by that culture, are really confused. So you can be, you know, activated by something and yet know that you're like, oh, just shut up, penis. I know. Just forget that. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Like, okay, knock it off. Tuck it in the waistband of your pants and go on with your day. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Only guys get that joke. Um, what do we do practically that we can use to, to help Im- improve our sex lives with our partners? You know, do we have some sort of concrete strategies for turning off the offs? How to turn off the offs varies from person to person. More, I can say that the best context for most people, it varies from person to person, but the best context for most people is low stress, high trust, high affection, and explicitly erotic. So if you can shift into a context where the person feels really like relaxed and calm and safe and engaged with you, lots of eye contact and smiling, um, that's going to be the most likely to get her to a place where she's really interested and experiences a really high intensity of pleasure. You can tell because you can't use genital response as a way to tell whether or not a woman is having a good time sexually, whether or not she's feeling aroused and turned on. There are other physiological things that are more reliable. So muscle tension, especially in the abdomen, butt and thighs, um, that the closer she gets to a re- orgasm, her high, the higher her level of arousal, the more that muscle tension will increase and it'll move in waves through her body. It's really slowly at first and relatively subtle, but gradually they'll increase in scale and intensity. Um, and you can listen to her vocalizations. There's Because there's tension in the vocal cords with higher levels of arousal, you'll hear that the way her voice sounds is different. Um, not everyone is equally likely to make those kinds of noises. So if she's not actually vocalizing, you can listen to her breath. Um Because both of the diaphragms in the torso begin to contract in waves with higher levels of arousal, she'll begin to hold her breath and you'll hear the tension in her breathing. She won't necessarily breathe really uh, fast or heavy, but she'll start to hold her breath. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. So those, those are all much more reliable signs than genital response. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. And and you hear about that too with like, in sort of darker situations where people feel shame because their body responds, like yes. in women as well, when they're like, I don't understand why. Does that mean something? And people are like, no, it doesn't mean anything. All it means is, yes, it was a sexually relevant situation, which has no particular relationship with whether it was wanted or liked. Right. And, and again, the goal is to have her like unable to keep her hands off you. That's a much better situation, right? That's right. the ultimate goal. Yeah. If you just want to, like, put your penis in something, get a flashlight. They're they're fabulous, right? But if you want to have a partner who tells her friends that you are the best lay she's ever had in her life, you want to get to know her as an individual because she's the only one who can tell you what are the things that hit her brakes and what are the things that hit her gas pedal. Gotcha. 
Okay. Does that make sense? It does. Yeah. And, and we've got to keep, can we keep track of this stuff manually? Like, do, do we need a spreadsheet? I mean, what's the best way to do this? <laughs> I, I can only say that my husband, to the best of my knowledge, is not a spreadsheet kind of guy and does not have a spreadsheet, but I can tell that he knows what the things are because I see him doing the things. And then I'll ask him, like, so did you know that that has, and he'd be like, uh, yeah, yeah, I knew. So, for example, my sister is a musician and her husband's also a musician. And for her, him playing the piano is like it for her. It is the thing. And they've been together for 12 years now. And he still doesn't know. Really? He's an awesome guy. He's fantastic. He's a great person. I'm glad to have him as a brother-in-law. But yeah, he is stuck in the way of thinking that sexually relevant things are the things that are like actually about sex. Whereas it could it could actually be stuff that has nothing to do with sex. Typical dude, right? He's a really good guy. Yeah. I like him a lot, but yeah, a little bit. Gotcha. Excellent. And is there anything else that I haven't asked you that you want to make sure you communicate? Aside from the book, Come As You Are, which we'll link up in the show notes. Oh, uh, we can say it's a New York Times bestseller now. Oh, the it is. Congratulations. On yes, I was like totally did a happy dance about that. Oh, the other thing I wanted to make sure that guys heard was the genital stuff. Genital stuff. We're, go for <laughs> it. Let's do some genital stuff here. So not just the way they behave, but also the way they look. There's a, a lot of cultural pressure lately on women, especially young women, are concerned about the way their genitals look. So I really encourage guys, if they can possibly do it, ask their partner to lie down with the lights on and let him look at her genitals and say all the things that he likes about them. Like, I feel quite confident that most guys are not looking at labia and being like, I don't know, those labia extend beyond the outer labia. It's a little like, I'm pretty <laughs> sure most guys are like, your pussy is amazing. And I love everything about it. Um, and we could we could use to hear that. Sometimes. Yeah, like, wow, it's real. It's not on a screen. I didn't have to buy it off the internet. This is right. great. Physically here and attached to this human being who yeah. laughs when I make jokes. Exactly. It's the sexiest thing in the world. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, images of vulvas in softcore porn in particular are being edited to look more tucked in, which is creating this myth that that's the way vulvas are supposed to look. And that's not at all true. Every vulva is really different from every other vulva. Um, but we're concerned, uh, younger women in particular are sort of learning that the way their genitals look is not normal and it totally is normal and beautiful and fabulous but uh nobody's sending that message and i would love it if guys could do that for their partners of course well yeah i mean it's like a cultural joke the camel toe and the you know yeah. i i remember going to a bar with a friend of mine who's from england and he i had to google half of what he said but he said i bet her fanny looks like a packet of roast beef and i remember being like is that he had to say it like five times and i still didn't get it he was sort of making like a remark about what this girl's vagina might look like. And I'm thinking, who cares? But I think a lot of people grew up thinking it's supposed to look one way or another. Mm -hmm. Yeah, which is pointless. I mean, you know, we've all been in locker rooms. We know that the everybody's junk is kind of hangs a different way. You know, it doesn't it doesn't affect much of anything at all. But that's a greater cultural issue. Well, right? Have guys gotten away with, you know, because all guys junk is different. Uh, the jury is in on the size thing. No, it doesn't matter. Overwhelmingly, there's been 30 years of research on it now. It doesn't matter. If any part matters, it's width, not length. 
FYI. There's going to be 130 more years of research just because yeah, we want to make sure. We're not going to stop asking <laughs> questions. But, yeah. But, but yeah, I mean, it's, uh, I mean, we, we make fun of each other for this, but it, it doesn't really matter. There was a guy in high school, his name was Al Knapp, and he married the girl that started this rumor about him, so I feel safe telling it because it was funny, and it was that his dick curved downward, right? And it was funny because we, we were all playing football. We all made fun of him. I mean, we all laughed about it. He wasn't, like, embarrassed and, you know, shamed into, like, walking out of the room. And then he married this girl and had kids, so whatever. But, yeah. you know, that just goes to show you that it doesn't matter. I mean, it got out from her, and now they're married. So, obviously, it didn't have that big of a negative effect on There's his... There's reason to believe that if a penis is curvy, it actually is better at hitting the G-spot. There you go. Yeah. So, here's a vote in favor of curvy penises. There you go. Yeah. So, and who knows? Maybe that's how yeah. it started. <laughs> like, hey, you you wouldn't believe how curved this thing is, and then us guys were like, "That's weird. Let's make fun of him for the next four years." Right, and she was, uh, you know, but it all worked out just fine. Yeah, seems to have gone just fine. Well, thank you very much. Come as you are, the new surprising science or the surprising new science that will transform your sex life, and uh, we'll have that linked up in the show notes. Great, thank you so much. Thank you. Good job. You know, that stuff is interesting. I really liked this episode. I like going through and defining the context sensitivity, the dual control mechanism, the accelerator versus the brakes, and a lot of this stuff I found really interesting. You know, learning about what makes your partner pump the brakes or the accelerator, for that matter, and, you know, looking at turning off the offs instead of just turning on the ons that much more. I really like this stuff. You know, giving in fully, really paying attention, and really leaning into what is going to be good for your partner, which is in turn going to be good for your relationship. So I hope you guys enjoyed this one as much as I did. Show feedback and guest suggestions. The show is a fanarchy, which means it's run by you. I rely on you for guests and, and to keep your finger on the pulse of what's actually going on in the old interwebs for that matter. So let me know what's up. Jordan at theartofcharm.com. And if you enjoyed this one, don't forget to thank Emily on Twitter. We'll have that linked in the show notes as well as all the other resources mentioned on the show. I also post tons of stuff on Twitter that never makes it on the show. Articles, insights, uh, funny stuff, and other crap. And that's at The Art of Charm on Twitter. So at The Art of Charm on Twitter. Bootcamp details at theartofcharm.com slash bootcamp. Also on the website are bonus episodes that aren't released in the iTunes feed for those of you who just can't get enough AOC. And remember to subscribe to the show in iTunes or check us out on our network, Podcast One. We also have Android and iPhone apps as well. And please review us on iTunes. Help us stand out from all the other crapola out there that and you know what I'm talking about you probably this is probably not the first show you found you sifted through the garbage the way that you do that is you give us a review write something nice and I'll love you forever special thanks to the Jasons for their help in production of the Art of Charm podcast go ahead and tell your friends because the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to someone else either in person or shared on the web now have a great week and leave everything and everyone better than you found them thanks for listening to the Art of Charm Get more confidence, relationship skills, life hacks, and everything for the extraordinary man at theartofcharmpodcast.com.